Almost all of our clothes are made from petroleum products. And unfortunately, some of our foods are made from petroleum products also. So, the question becomes, where do we draw the line? And I think the line is... Welcome to the Arts Report for CITR 101.9. It is January 16th. Today on the Arts Report, we check in with W2, we check in with Push, and we talk a little bit about tomorrow's event, 24 Hours of Radio Art. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Arts Report, and it is, as I mentioned just now, January 16th, 5 o'clock p.m. We are going to be talking right off the top of the hour uh, to Cease and Scott Clark. No, Cease Wiss and Scott Clark, excuse me. And we are going to be talking to them live. They are supporters of the W2 Media Cafe, which has been going through issues with the city. And while it is open for quote-unquote business at this point, um, there are still issues remaining between the board, volunteers, former staff, and the city. So we are going to check in with the current state of W2 from an artist's point of view and uh, independent artist. And member of the W2 Media Collective, C. Swiss, will talk, as well as Scott Clark, who is the Executive Director of Alive, or the Aboriginal Life in Vancouver Enhancement Society. But first, we're going to listen to a few minutes of a clip from the uh, press conference that happened on December 19, 2012, just before uh, the eviction, quote-unquote, was uh, at just after the doors had been locked. So we will uh, hear a little bit from Scott Clark at the beginning and then uh, Cease Weiss, and then we will hear from them in person. Okay, here we go. We take exception to how they unilaterally closed these doors, shut off the internet, and kicked our office out of here as well. There was no consultation whatsoever with the community, there was then no full board of directors to give them authority. The city officials know that there is no authority coming from the board. I just learned that the city is looking at moving this whole space or changing this entire space and moving us elsewhere. Again, there's been no consultation. I say shame on the mayor. Shame on the mayor and shame on the council. Because only last week they announced a 22-member panel for increasing civic engagement for people within the city of Vancouver. And then two days later, oh, before I go there, no Indigenous representation on that 22-member panel. And then two days later, the mayor and council allow this place to be shut down, closing out not only us at Alive, but many other Indigenous organizations many other immigrant community organizations and other groups that cannot afford to rent space and get actively involved in building our community. Today, we're, we are working in partnership with all our friends, 
many of us, and we're going to have another forum tonight, and we're going to continue to build the grassroots movements to ensure that this space remains in the community, for the community, by the community, and enough of this stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And the mayor and council need to stand up and work with us if they truly want to build engaging uh, communities and citizenship. So I thank you uh, for, for coming out, and I hope many of you will come to our forum tonight. Okay, so we're just actually going to have two last speakers that really can't, they, they were going to speak, they were feeling, there's, there's a little child here having problems, but I'm going to bring up Ashley right now, and if Debbie wants to, she can come up after. But I just want to, I want you guys to really think about what's being said here, and ask yourselves, if the government can take over a, an independent society, which many of you may be involved in, in different ways, ask yourself how you would feel about the local government or any government coming in and locking the doors on you and saying you don't have the right to do what you're doing because it's not making a difference. And anybody that wants to tell me that W2 has not made a difference in their lives, then they haven't actually spent any time here. They haven't talked to the... It's a shame, shame, shame on this local government. Shame on you, Gregor Robertson, and all of the councillors. We all voted you in because we believe in you. This vision that you have needs to include all people. It needs to include the people in the downtown east side who are entrenched in poverty that you guys continue to allow them to be in. Woodward's is a statement, and it exists here because people stood up and sat on the street, lived on the street in this kind of weather that we're experiencing today. And as you heard from Rob, that him and his brother lived right over here, waiting for that to happen. I have a sister-in-law that now lives here. She spent many months here. She was here from the beginning to the end. She went off to Tent City. They had to drag her off the street because she was so mad. And that's how mad I am. I am mad about the fact that as a First Nations woman standing back watching the atrocities of what this country puts us through as First Nations, I've had enough. And then I come to a space that I think is one of the safer spaces because there are people of many cultures here that are standing together and we're locked out. So I don't really want any of my non-native brothers and sisters to experience what I experience being a person whose DNA is built in this building. Yes, my ancestors' blood and bones are in the walls here, in the windows, in everything. And I do have a right to be here. And if I have a right to be here, and I am not recognized by this country as being inherently part of this land, then everybody that's part of this center has a right to be here too. Because it's not just about the blood and the bones, it's about the sweat and the tears and the laughter. It's about everything. I'd like to ask if there's any questions from people. Any questions? Where's the board? Oh. Are any members of the board here? We'd really like to uh, actually know who you are. Wow. Are there any people here that were replaced by W-2 workers that might want to talk to? And that's just the first part of a clip from the press conference on December 19th and uh, the first voice you heard there was Scott Clark as I mentioned he is the executive director of Alive or Aboriginal Life in Vancouver Enhancement Society. Uh, Scott are you there? 
Yes, I am. Thanks. Hi. Um, I just wanted to give you a few minutes uh, on the show to kind of give us an update from an artist and a community leader point of view. Um, what has happened since that press conference? I know that there's been uh, some, there's been obviously press releases, etc. And there are coverage talking about how that this was not in fact an eviction, that the W-2 is now again open during the day. And that um, it is being run by city staff at this point. Could you right. fill us in a little bit about what's happening uh, from your point of view, what you know about it? Uh, it's, it is a complex uh, issue because it's actually got layers to it. But ultimately, there hasn't been any consultation by the three board members of W2 who are making these decisions or the city with the community. Uh, we know that they are having a, a board meeting tonight in quotes. I don't even know if they'll have quorum again. And I think what they're doing now is looking at dissolving W-2 and, uh, you know, where they can, you know, perhaps open it up again. Um, as far as our agency Alive and all the other Aboriginal groups that were using W-2, the artists, um, all we haven't been able to use the space at all. The city does claim that it is open, but uh, I go by there, you know, literally every day and, and the doors are locked. It's, it's quiet. There's There's no action going on. But... I do understand the city has um, appointed three, at least three, city staff to work at W. I don't know exactly what they're doing, though. Um, what has it meant to not have that space available uh, for local communities? Oh, it, it, W2 uh, is just a hotbed of activity, for, for particularly for the Aboriginal groups, the community artists, the low-income and the the uh, immigrant community and the small nonprofits. It was just a hotbed of activity where we would meet and have all kinds of events and meetings and all this kind of stuff. So actually, when they when they kicked us out, uh, we haven't had a place in in the downtown east side in that area to go and uh, you know do the things that we do. But we've been working very closely with a lot of the um, supporters of W two, and we've developed. Um, uh, uh, we've actually taken W two on the road and organizing several other events uh, while all these issues are being uh, addressed by the city and the three board members. Now, um, the city has said that, you know, it's not an eviction and they'd like it to continue as a, a community. And we also have at the same time going on the Waldorf, which has is closing. And, and you know, it's a different situation because it's a, it's a business, um, though it is community-oriented, and there will be actually a fundraiser at 4W2 at the Waldorf uh, tomorrow night, which is, has, its, has its own irony. But I'm wondering if you um, have any comments on kind of uh, the various closures. I know that um, there was, a, there was a, a comment, I believe, by the, the mayor that I read in the paper that was um, uh, basically saying that, you know, cultural, these cultural hubs and these cultural um, uh, centers kind of come and go and then there's lots of fun things happening in the city and then we're going to, you know, and so it doesn't seem to be, um, there seems to be a bit of a, a sidestep of this issue. Yeah, the arts community has been, the, the model the city has, and WTU is an example, the model that they have there is, is not a functional model and and uh, it's sad it's sad that we we tried to work with the city to say listen this particular model you have has to, it, it doesn't work let's negotiate a better model that actually does work 
the thing that's happening over at, at Waldorf, um, you know, we've got there seems to be a pattern emerging is that the, the spaces for art spaces are, are falling to the wayside and it, perhaps this is part of the gentrification process. I don't know, but there seems to be a pattern in the city. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm great the mayor standing up and supporting Waldorf, but, I, you know, sadly we can't say the same thing over at W2. And yet, and the city, yeah, the city is in a position in both ways to help out in different ways. But it seems, as a landlord, it, I I was surprised that W two wasn't their first, um, especially since you know the goals. I mean, they talk about making money, and you know you're not you're not fulfilling the kind of business end of the model when it's a community arts project. Um, Scott, we are going to listen to a little bit more of the press conference, and um, I am going to uh, have Cease come in, and um, I want to really thank you for. Your time, and uh, is there, uh, you can find out more about kind of what's going on with W2 at creativetechnology.org, uh, I believe, and yep. you can also see the um, the fun, you can go to the fundraiser tomorrow evening, they have a arts birthday celebration at 9, and then they have a, uh, the DICE fundraiser at 10, and you can check that out on Facebook, DICE Presents, W2 Belongs to Me. Uh, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Megan. Have a good day. Bye-bye. We take exception to how they unilaterally... Are there any people here that were replaced by W-2 workers that might want to talk to the press? I think there were some people here that were the replacement W-2 staff that might want to come up and speak. This is your time to stand up for yourself. You're welcome to come up here, and I know you're out there. But if you're too ashamed, which I don't blame you, because I would be ashamed if I allowed the city of Vancouver to tell me to take over an independent organization that is built by the people, for the people, with the people, but apparently the people weren't involved in being told they couldn't be here. So let's just say this, the people, the scab labor, because I'm going to say it like it is, it's scab labor. You're no better than crossing a picket line by going in there and taking over positions from people that practically don't even get paid for their work. And isn't it ridiculous, people, that the city staff is not getting their wages lowered to the wage level that the staff at, at W2 has been working at? I wonder how they would survive on Irwin's, on Irwin's budget that he has to survive on, on Leanne's budget that she has to survive on, on any of the cafe staff people. Are, are the, I, my question to the city is, if you're going to put these people in here, why aren't you lowering, lowering their wages and making them work for the same level that the people who have built this practically on their blood, sweat and tears, their finances, their passion, their connections to community, because the people that built this have not just decided one day, let's start a media center and do something for the people. No. We're talking about people with a long history of media arts who have been involved at many levels of many organizations across this country, have been at park meetings, being Pacific uh, artist-run centers, organization. We had meetings here. We've had meetings all over the country. This is what we do. This is our lives. We live media. Half the time we don't sleep and we don't eat and we half the time don't even have housing, but we are making our art because it is the thing that keeps us alive. It is the passion that keeps our blood pumping in our veins. And it is the reason that people in this community come here. 
because they feel that love, that passion, that safety factor. And if anybody wants to argue with me and say that this is a safe neighborhood for anybody to just hang out in, then go ahead. I just make my Now, uh, I was very excited to have uh, Cease, who you heard speaking um, on the program, but due to technical difficulties, that is not working. So we will get a comment from her at another time. But uh, as you can hear, one of the things she was kind of speaking about there was safety. And one of the things that I read um, in the paper was uh, comments about the ability for the space to be used safely and by safe persons. And so what we have is a space that is used by uh, members of the downtown east side, of the indigenous population, and of a wider community, of course. Um, and And I just like people at home to think about it is harder sometimes to support a space and to endorse a space that is, that you, that is connected with a, a politics. And, uh, and to a certain degree, uh, kudos on the city for originally supporting a space um, that is going to be home to, uh, you know, radicals and artists who are critical of the way the city is being run. But ultimately, uh, that seems to have not been supported all the way through to fruition. So hopefully um, we can all come to a place where we can support a space that has a radical aspect as well as something like the Waldorf that is uh, also important. You got to have fun and you got to dance and you got to come together in a way that's free of prejudice and and is a little easier to partake in. And I think those are both very important spaces in the city. We are going to take a break. And when we get back, guess what we're going to do? We're going to talk about push. Stay tuned. as Art's birthday and pronounced Art one million years old. On January 17th, CHR celebrates with 24 hours of radio art. That's 24 hours of the weird and the reckless in your ear holes. Tune in to hear radio and sound art, noise and experimental music, and all the strangeness CATR programmers and the Vancouver community has to offer. Guest hosts and artists include Prophecy Sun, Patrick Sampler, Whip the UFO, sound artists Anna Fritz, Julie Gendron, and Emma Hendricks, Giorgio Magnanesi of Vancouver New Music, and more. For schedule updates on all our birthday madness, stay tuned to CITR and like us on Facebook. To participate, submit your art or weirdo idea by midnight Sunday, January 13th to arts at CITR.ca. Happy 1,050th birthday, art! It's a full-time job, you know what I mean? So you need your books, your books, but your money's all spent. Renting your books can save you up to 55%. We also offer used, new, and e-books too. And custom course packages just for you, just for you. So hit us up for the textbooks before it's too late. Go to bookstore.ubc.ca. Yeah. Real good. 
We are back, and we are very lucky to have in studio uh, the curator of the Human Library. The Human Library is a, a free event that's happening uh, throughout Push Festival from uh, January 15th to February 3rd, um, specifically January 18th to 20th, 25th to 27th, and February 1st to 3rd from 12 to 4 p.m. at the Vancouver Public Library, and it is an extension of the uh, International Human Library, uh, which is uh, developed by Stop the Violence from Copenhagen in Denmark. But locally, curator Dave DeVoe, who is a local playwright and personality, he will be uh, telling us a little bit about uh, what the uh, what the curating process for Human Library was and about a few of the personalities that you will be able to, quote-unquote, take out like a book from the library. So, welcome, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Now, um, you curated are curating the Human Library, and can you tell us a little bit about the concept, just to fill people in? So, as you mentioned, the project emerged um, out of Copenhagen, uh, and it was a group of friends who came together in the wake of a friend of theirs being um, severely hurt in in a hate crime, and, and the friends were looking for a, sort of a creative way to respond to uh, a sense of violence and prejudice within the community. Uh, and so they created the first human library, which is uh, an opportunity for people to, as you mentioned, check out uh, a, a book with a particular title that uh, could be construed as a label. So uh, in, the, in the original li library, they had titles like gay or... Um, disabled or HIV positive, and people could choose a title, uh, which would then get them 20 minutes one-on-one uh, -on -one to chat with the person who corresponded with that title to get uh, a bit of an inside scoop on, on their lives and their struggles and sort of put a human face to what we would consider um, a label or, uh, or potentially um, a, a group who, who faces some sort of judgment. Now, how... Uh, we'll get to the specific books that you can uh, take out of the library in a minute, but um, can you tell me a little bit about how you decided to, like what the curatorial process was? Because that's really always fascinating for me, and I think that kind of behind-the-scenes aspect of how, did you, how do you make choices about what stories you think people might want to hear and which stories you think will be important for people to hear? I think certainly... Um Everyone does have a story within them, so it was a matter of, of trying to mitigate um, what created the best cross-section of stories and, um, and we felt really resonated in 2013. Um, Norman Armour, the executive director of the festival, as well as uh, Glenn Altin from the Grunt Gallery, the three of us sat down together and, and uh, created a short list of, of what titles or kinds of titles we might be looking for in the broader community. Um, and again, it was really, really uh, focusing on, we're looking at Vancouver in 2013. We're not looking at, you know, Copenhagen 12 years ago. We're not looking at um, Moscow in 2013, that these titles really have to resonate in our sort of West Coast, North American context. Um, and so we, we started approaching different uh, community re resource organizations and arts organizations who may be able to actually get us in touch with, uh, with people who would feel comfortable taking on that title. Um, and we also actually did uh, an open call uh, through through similar resources as well as some arts magazines um, and, and different media outlets um, to say, listen, this is what the project's about. This is what we think it can potentially do for us in Vancouver today. So you tell me, what is your title? What's the story that goes along with that title? And how does that um, how does that fit within what we're trying to achieve? Uh, so then I had the 
amazing task of, of um, interacting with all of those people, um, sometimes uh, via email, but, but in, in most, of, most cases in person, and, um, and really trying to, um, trying to help them uh, shape their own personal narratives um, that can be contained within that 20-minute format. So helping them tell their story as they would tell it, but in a way that is its best possible version. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, as you mentioned, I'm a playwright. That's sort of my background. And so uh, this became a wonderful extension of my own craft as far as helping other people shape their own material, which is completely true, um, but, uh, but needs to, to fit that sort of smaller container. So some of the uh, titles you can take out are uh, Female Heavy Equipment Mechanic, Refugee, Children of Deaf Adults, Diva Glam versus Downtown East Side, Born Again Christian. We also have things like Kinky Dancer, Polyamorous, Butterfly Boy, Asexual, Drag Queen, who by, I believe is a local notorious queen, Jaylene Time, right? Mm, there are rumors on the street, yes. Oh. So what I was wondering is, um, one of the things I noticed about this is there is quite the kind of gender se- um, and sexuality and, and when it comes to things like kinkiness, just like sex. Um, and And... As part of the kind of drag queer scene, like, is that is that a big part of Vancouver culture? Like, did that happen naturally when you were developing this? I, I would love to say that I put my own personal bias to, <laughs> to try to, to collect as many uh, sort of gender and sexuality related titles as I could. However, that that actually uh, manifested quite organically. And uh, and I think that might speak to a few things, certainly to um, to sort of large communities that that uh, exist within the city, but also um, a real willingness um, to talk about about sort of underlying issues surrounding those communities, because I think um I think we're lucky in in factions of the queer community that that um, we do talk about uh, sexuality and gender uh, quite a bit um, internally. And I think what's exciting about this project is that um, those conversations are are extending well beyond isolated communities to um, anyone and everyone who's willing to participate in that conversation. And I think the other now I was at the push opening on Monday and there was kind of a, a human library light where there was a, a not not curated by yourself, but kind of a sample of what that would be like. And I and I spoke to someone uh, I spoke to David who had strong, strong stance on multiculturalism. That, that was the title. And um, and so I went to s- sit down with him. And, and I think what people should definitely come to this with is a sense of adventure, because one of the one of the points of all of these kind of titles is you immediately have an idea of who you're going to meet and what they're going to say. And you should definitely like take a chance and, and pick something that you think might be difficult or interesting that is outside your comfort range. Yeah. Because I can absolutely guarantee that, um, that the person you get behind that title is not the person you expect. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly, uh, I mean, none of us are one thing. We, we are a multitude of titles. And in this case, I've really had to, um, convince people to to hop on board only being one thing mm-hmm. at a time um, but but I think what's wonderful about the stories that they're willing to share is um, is that it's so it's so um, it so goes against the grain of, of what I myself even would believe you know a born-again Christian to be mm-hmm. or um, or even the title queer Islamophobe which is already getting um, phone calls and, and, and people are, are sort of um, curious or concerned about what that might look like. Um, so I think, again, I, I keep uh, sort of reiterating that th- for me the project is about um, 
finding the humanity in in all of these people and likewise the um the books finding the humanity of the reader there's something really intimate about having a one-on-one -on -one interaction for 20 minutes with someone you don't know and that you potentially would probably never meet in in other circumstances that's exactly what i said after after i finished was that beyond the actual content of the conversation um the the idea of sitting in, in front of someone and having only the vaguest idea of what you're going to hear um, and and having no kind of natural social interaction to kind of buffer that is is uh, it was uh, I was I was leery but I went in with a, a an open mind and it was it was really interesting and I think it um, you know pick pick a title that you want to learn about and uh, I think I would also say you know pick a bunch it's free absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And originally the idea was to combat prejudice. So, um, uh, you know, maybe pick something that you, you might have a prejudice about. Maybe you'll be dis, dis, disprejudiced, which is a word I just made up. But I, I like that word. I think I'm going <laughs> to – I'll tweet that. Do you prejudiced? Now, let's, let's just talk briefly about um, ZZ. You have a, a show coming up with ZZ Theatre. Yeah. Uh, in February, My Funny Valentine, and it is written by yourself and directed by your uh, partner and husband, Cameron McKenzie, mm -hmm. uh, for ZZ Theatre. And that and ZZ Theatre is under uh, Cameron's direction in general? Correct. He's Correct? the artistic director. So tell us a little bit uh, about My Funny Valentine and just developing it for ZZ Theatre and the, and the spin that you guys took on it. Sure. So, um, so My Funny Valentine actually premiered in Vancouver in 2011 uh, through ZZ as well. Um, if you don't know the show, it's, uh, it's based on the story of Lawrence King, who was a 15-year-old kid in Oxnard, California, who in 2008 asked a boy in his class to be his valentine. And the next day, that boy brought in a gun and shot him in the head during first period oh in the goodness. school computer lab. And, uh, and he died um, two days later, so he actually died on Valentine's Day. Um, the, the case at the time, in its initial re reporting, um, was referred to by Newsweek as the most prominent gay bias crime since the 1998 murder of Matthew Shepard. So um, I was immediately overwhelmed by, by the case and, and, and confused by the case. And, um, and it left me for a long time feeling really hopeless, thinking, wow, well, we've come 10 years and sort of what have we, what have we learned? What's changed? Though the cases are drastically different, there is a same um, underlying uh, value that, um, that I think led to, to both of these crimes. So um, I started, uh, well, I started collecting all of the media materials I could find about the show um, and created a huge binder for myself. Um, not really sure what I would do with it because I, I was not really interested in writing about it. I'd never really written about sort of uh, hyper-politicized news material. Um, but I decided to uh, that, that that's what I needed to do. So I actually applied to a festival in Toronto uh, without having written anything, just saying this is what I want to do. Um, I want to sort of have a conversation with an audience so that we can try to come to terms with, with how this happened and why this happened. And, um, and so the original, that original version, which was essentially just me doing various monologues, um, premiered in Toronto in 2009. And I, we spent the next two years developing it through uh, various sources. ZZ funded a lot of that development. Uh, Playwrights Theatre Centre on Granville Island also uh, drastically helped that process. And so the, the final world premiere that we had in 2011 uh, bore the same title uh, and one of the same characters uh, as the 2009 version but all of the material was new mm -hmm. and six other characters emerged into the show 
Um, it's a solo show, seven characters uh, that, that one actor plays each character who are all people on the periphery of the murder who aren't immediately involved but whose lives are forever affected by that. And, uh, and it, really, um, it really tackles uh, various opinions, um, pro-death penalty, against death penalty, uh, people who think that uh, Larry was at fault, people who think the murderer was at fault. Um, and, um, and it really, hopefully, lets us, very similarly to Human Library, lets us in on everyone's humanity so that we don't feel so polarized um, and, and, and we don't feel, uh, we don't let the sort of the polarization of the case become hostile. Yeah, and now uh, the 2011 production uh, won a heck of a lot of awards, uh, and it was nominated for three Jesse Richardson Awards, so three Jessies, and uh, is uh, Anton Lipovetsky is, is starring, and he w- has won a Jesse, I think, for emerging new yeah, actor? he won. He won um, sort of uh, best newcomer, mm-hmm. or, uh, and then he also won the Mayor's Performing Arts Award. So mm-hmm. he's um, he's sort of the next big thing around town. He was on the cover of the Georgia Strait for the through the theater preview uh, a couple months ago, and um, he's a. Uh, He's a pretty unbelievable performer if you've had the chance to see him. Yeah, um, he did some great stuff in the Fringe this year and last year. So uh, that you can check out from February 19th to March 2nd, uh, 2013. And uh, it's Tuesday to Friday at 8 at the Fire Hall Art Center and then there are matinees in as well. So you can check out that information at zztheater.ca. And uh, just keeping it all in the family here now Cameron McKenzie is also curating Club Push and uh, so that is is happening all throughout the Push Festival it starts tonight I believe with The God That Comes with Hawksley Workman and I wanted to direct listeners to CITR.ca where there is an interview with a a uh, young lady who worked on the prologue to this event with one of our arts uh, arts reporters, Lauren. So you can check that out on citr.ca. Check out My Funny Valentine, uh, written by Dave DeVoe at zztheater.ca. And of course, uh, for free, at the Vancouver Central Public Library, Human Library, Take Out a Person. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds like a really... Uh, really interesting thing now people should just drop by you don't need to book tickets or anything like that you don't need to book in advance um we have 20 titles in the library but on any given day we'll have different combinations of those um so when you make it to the desk we'll we'll see which titles of interest and you'll be on your way excellent thank you so much for joining us dave uh we are going to take a brief break and when we get back we'll listen to um a little bit more push content we have uh, francois who is uh, doing Cinema Musica with Turning Point Ensemble uh, on January 20th. Two shows only. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Prophecy Sun. Meow. You're listening to CITR Radio 101.9 FM in Vancouver. On Friday, January 25th, come to Seymour Mountain for the Great Northern Concrete Toboggan Race, an annual event that challenges the creativity, innovation, and technical skills of engineering students from all across Canada. Participating teams must design and construct a toboggan with a metal frame and a running surface made completely out of concrete. For more information, go to gnctr2012.com.
Cinema Musica with Turning Point Ensemble at SFU Woodwards is at January 20th from at 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Two performances on the same day that look to be uh, quite different as they are improvisational in nature. Uh, the bringing together uh, groundbreaking artists, musicians, and filmmakers, it's a conversation between music and film. And as Francois, uh, brilliant clarinetist, will tell us, the uh, idea of suspense and the tone of film noir played a big part in developing the tone and the music for the piece. And uh, it's a live synchronized arrangement of Arnold Schoenberg's accompaniment to the film Pursuit, Fear and Catastrophe, uh, as well as several other local Vancouver artists. You can check out uh, the information at pussfestival.ca and sfuwoodwards.ca. And uh, Turning Point Ensemble is a large chamber choir uh, of about 17 uh, instrumentalists uh, and is known for pushing the envelope. And I spoke before the holidays to Francois about uh, his approach to the music and what the show had in store. Yet the kind of combination of film and music is actually could be could be described as a traditional kind of pre-talkie. Um, and so I was interested in what elements that, uh, for example, in suspense, for you, what you consider kind of experimental and um, new, and which elements you consider part of that tradition of music and film. Tell me, tell me a little bit about suspense as a work, and which elements are new and experimental, and which you think are more traditional, um, as I said, from the kind of traditional relationship between music and film. Okay. Well, the, the whole idea, um, when I was asked to, um, to uh, do this project, um, from the get-go, it was really clear that we wanted to come up with um, a project that would really examine the relationship between music and image. Um, and the, the, the Turning Point program really shows um, some traditional works of films that were that were made with the music put onto the film. You know, film was created after the music, and I thought long and hard about how I wanted to approach this. And I thought it would be really interesting to actually uh, set up a collaborative process with a filmmaker when after the film is made and uh, and things are edited and put together, you know, based on the needs of the image and, and the, the drama or the, the narrative. So I found this, uh, this, this couple of visual artists uh, in California, uh, David Hodge and Hejin Hodge, who have been collaborating uh, with various people, and they've been working in a very nonlinear way. They've done a lot of gallery installations where they're, they're showing films that are uh, images of people, but they're they're doing it like on multi screens, you know, where they have six people interacting, but they're all in separate frames and separate projection, projection on separate screens. And I thought that was kind of interesting, this non-linearity and synchronicity of ideas that happen when you have such a setup. And um, 
I asked them if they would be interested in developing uh, not so much a scenario, but developing um, images that were driven by ideas of rhythm and and rhythmic flow, you know. So they suggested this idea of filming gymnasts jumping off a trampoline, but where the shot is actually of them in midair and working with this idea of suspense, of time suspension, uh, of suspension of gravity, and working with um, uh, really uh, uh, high-speed cameras so that we could do these projection of these gymnasts in midair in super slow motion uh, to get a sense of, uh, of the drama of that action, of what it's like to be suspended in midair and where they're going and where they're coming from. And... I wrote a little bit of music and gave them a, a taste, a little bit of what I would envision as as a, a, a musical representation of that. And then we started bouncing ideas back and forth until we uh, until we got to a point where we were able to generate more music and more visuals. And right now we're in the process of taking all these pieces that we've created and putting them together and creating a narrative. Um, uh, with all these elements, but the the second aspect of it, which is what we're dealing now, dealing now, is that we really wanted to inspire the work on deal of suspense, as in the traditional uh, film noir concept of suspense. You know, of trying to figure out what is going on in the narrative, in the story, a whodunit type of situation, like what's <laughs> happening, with, you know, mm-hmm. and really playing with this idea of the protagonist and the, uh, and the femme fatale and, and all these iconic elements of film noir. And right now we're kind of exploring the material that we have and we're, we're, we're trying to fit it into an order that would convey um, this, this sort of uh, iconic element of film noir. So it's a work in progress, and we, we're, we're slowly running out of time. We have a very specific schedule that we're adhering to right now, and uh, if we meet our goals, uh, it, it, it could be really, really interesting. But uh, the, the collaborative aspect is really interesting because I'm learning so much about about how the image informs the music and vice versa, and we have been going through this whole exploratory process and discovering all kinds of elements that um, where the two arts kind of coexist that we're, we're never really, we're always kind of aware of it, but we never really look at it uh, with a microscope, you know? So we're really engaged into that dialogue of how we can make the, the image stronger with the music and how the image can support that music in an even better way. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's quite challenging and, and very stimulating uh, uh, creative process, for sure. And that was Francois Houle. You can check him out at francoishoul.ca. He is uh, a experimental kind of pushing the boundaries of, of classical clarinet and uh, non-classical clarinet, as the case may be. And uh, he will be performing uh, as part of the Cinema Musica with Turning Point Ensemble at SFU Woodward's as part of the Push Festival. Uh, it is at the uh, Faye and Milton Wan Experimental Theater, January 20th. Uh, there's a matinee at 2, and there is an evening performance at 8. And uh, if you check out online uh, at our mixcloud.com, Arts Report, 
Google it, or you can link to it from our Facebook page, which I know you've already liked, uh, which is uh, facebook.com slash it's report. Uh, you can hear the full 20-minute conversation where he goes a little deeper into uh, his process as well as uh, what people will hear and just the nature of improvisation and how he feels that it lends itself to engagement. Now, just before we uh, we finish off, we have James in studio. James, hello. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. And yourself? Oh, I'm doing very, very well. Now, before we end our, our push coverage for today, um, I know that you are going to be uh, working the club. Yeah. Uh, you're going to be, so say hi to James at the bar if you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're going to be providing some reviews of some of the shows you get to see as a, as a benefit yeah. of being there. Yeah. yeah, because the way they have it set up, the bar's at the very, very back and I get to watch the show instead of serve people drinks. Yeah, cabaret. <laughs> um, and you just wanted to do a, a quick shout out for an event uh, that you're involved with this evening, correct? That's right. It's Bingo for Life. It's a charity fundraiser for the Friends for Life Society down in the West End. Um, Normally, as everyone should know, it's at Celebrities at Mm 8pm, but Celebrities is having renovations this, this month, I believe. So we've moved across the street. We're going to be starting at the Fountainhead at 8pm sharp. And seating is much more limited at the Fountainhead, so it's good to arrive early. Okay, well, mm-hmm. thank you so much. And we will hear more from you uh, over the next few weeks. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. All right, so we are uh, going to uh, take another uh, quick... Actually, you know what? Let's move right into uh, our radio arts. Uh, now, tomorrow... From midnight, so midnight tonight, through midnight January 17th, it is all about radio art. That is the weird, the experimental, the difficult. You're going to hear noise, soundscapes, basically anything weird, anything you're not used to hearing on the radio, and anything that might push the boundaries of what one expects. Um, Now, if this doesn't fully... um, describe the situation for you i have an expert anna freeze she was a program director at citr and she is also uh you can find her at nice little static and she is a radio and sound art scholar and artist uh an amazing uh, woman who is going to tell us a little bit about the definition and history of radio art Well, radio art is, uh, I guess, initially, which is to say at some point in the early 20th century, it was associated mostly with the creative use of broadcast radio. And it has its roots both in radio drama, in specific the, um, the German tradition of Hörspiel, which literally means to listen play, like listen, listen to some play. And... It's not exactly the same as radio drama because it ne- doesn't need to be a linear narrative. It doesn't need to unfold exactly like theater. Um, but uh, the the other aspect of radio art, I guess, in the early days came from experimental music, so the roots of that around musique concrète in France and uh, and also just sort of early data and um, futurist activities with regard to rethinking the role of sound or sounds in um, in the environment. And so thinking about different kinds of sounds like percussive sounds, car sounds, machine sounds as being part of what might be considered musical or at least something that would be an artistic medium worth listening to. I mean, for me, when I first started working with 
with radio art that was in the 1990s, actually, at CITR. And I was really thinking of the studio as this, as this instrument, as uh, the studio itself as a kind of instrument. Instead of creating content to play over the airwaves, I was trying to manipulate the relationship between listeners and, and makers. And I was interested in the way that the studio could kind of create this feedback loop. Um, but in, I guess where, where that then later went for me was to think about how expanding the idea of radio outside of the studio also meant that radio art could also leave the studio. And by that I mean to, to use small transmitters and to use the conditions of transmission as, uh, as the medium of making art. And so now it's maybe a little more accurate to say that the thing that we're doing is transmission art. Because in, in addition to broadcast radio, a lot of artists are using every form of possible transmission. So really incorporating manipulations of the electromagnetic spectrum and sampling from shortwave and from scanners and walkie-talkies and just all sorts of places on the, uh, on the EM band and not just in the sort of AM, FM kind of range. And, and also you know, using those... Uh, using these, these different aspects of the spectrum. I mean, there's people working with x-rays and microwaves and that sort of thing. And it's interesting to think of those all grouped together uh, as transmission art. But I still feel that I'm, I'm kind of committed to this term radio art because I am really committed to the idea that radio doesn't need to have the singular form that has been proposed by broadcast radio for the last, you know, 80-plus years. I'm really interested in the idea that now, especially when radio has really undergone a lot of transformations in the digital age that uh, it doesn't have the pressure to be cutting edge anymore and that kind of allows us to manipulate it quietly from behind the scenes and do a lot of other interesting things. As far as our birthday goes, it's a really great opportunity to just think of the radio station, the radio studio, and the, the listening and making environment as a, a place where some experimentation can happen. And, and as a listener, you're not, you're not just an audience member, you're, you're also part of what's making it possible because that circuit of transmission is only complete when, when you also tune in. And that was Anna Freeze talking about radio art. And in the background, we hear Prophecy Sun. Prophecy Sun will be hosting uh, an hour from 10 to 11, and she will be doing her vocal experimentation. We also have artists such as... Um, we have Emma Gregory, who is going to be Saki's Reginald, and will be doing a psychedelic reading of his writing. We have Emma Hendricks and Julie Genron right after that. Uh, they will be doing Contact Breakfast, a piece created specifically for 24 hours of radio art. And uh, they are going to be having breakfast with contact microphones and their three-year-old son. to talk and he likes to um, you know play with things at the table and, and you know he has these weird habits of you know, where he you know, kicks the wall like and he makes these fun, he's funny when he's really excited and happy he kind of makes these weird like sounds where he's super really enjoying his breakfast so it kind of it, it sort of made sense especially when you had said there was morning slots that were available and um, that's kind of you know that's what we do <laughs> get up and have breakfast everybody else so um yeah and um i have i have a whole bunch of half-built contact microphones 
I had run out of parts, and so um, so Julie actually had said, "Oh, well, why don't we let's do a let's do a breakfast and let's you know contact Mike the apartment." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we put up some room mics as well. Um, so yeah, it was just this idea of kind of you know having breakfast, and we were kind of conscious to to not we were going to bring in instruments and some pedals and things like that and then we kind of thought yeah i don't think that's really we wanted it to be very natural Mm -hmm. you know like this is just us having breakfast and uh for the longest time he hasn't really been very interested in like music uh like you know we've bought him instruments and things and he doesn't he's, he's starting to play them a bit more but but he he gets what he does get really into is the equipment so mm-hmm. if i bring in a mixer he's all over it uh he loves our record players um and he plays with our uh, our uh, dj mixer all the time so he loves to kind of loves to speed up the records and um uh he loves to get two of them going at once and then he likes to just sit on the table where the where the mixer is and just kind of play with it <laughs> and flip the record like what's going on and so yeah it's really really interesting to watch and I kind of think, you know, it's great that he has that opportunity to, to play with things like that. And, you know, I used to be really into making you know, noise art. So, you know, he, uh, I did, you know, I'm not too afraid of him, like, <laughs> you know, causing feedback and breaking things. It's, yeah, yeah, that's good. Go for it. Part of the organic experience. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's a learning curve. And that was Emma Hendrick speaking about Contact Breakfast. We will also have uh, other artists locally like Andrew Scott, a.k.a. Whip of the UFO. And then we also have, uh, and we have uh, Patrick Sampler, who will be on in the evening doing an original collection of treatments of some of his tracks. And then we also have, I'm very excited to have Barry Truax. Um, he is an electric acoustic artist and soundscape sage. And he has recorded for the first time his rendition of Cage's Lecture on Nothing. Um, and that will be an intro to two hours of local submissions, including Quiet Riot and Vancouver Special, a collection of subtle and quiet compositions, and then a, a collection of submissions looking at the sounds and ephemera of Vancouver. And then we also have local hosts such as Duncan McHugh of Duncan's Donuts, who will be wishing Art happy birthday all over the world live. We'll see how that works out. Uh, Oswaldo Perez will be doing some Japanese noise, crazy spoken word, eerie sounds, concrete mixes. He hosts the morning after show. And then we also will have uh, our, uh, DJ Bleak will be here. Giorgio, Giorgio from Vancouver New Music. He's the artistic director, has curated an international mix for us and more. You can check out the whole schedule at citr.ca um, under the uh, special broadcasts link in the programming. So it's citr.ca, 24 hours of radio art. Just Google it. It'll take you right there. And it's going to be weird and wacky and we will be podcasting. So please, please turn in, tune in and uh, check out also the uh, celebrations of art all over the globe. You can look at artsbirthday.net. And there will be a live performance uh, in celebration at the Dice fundraiser tomorrow as well.
And that is the show for us tonight. We are going to be going live to the AMS elections. And, uh, uh, sorry, not the AMS elections, the AMS debates for the elections that are coming up at UBC. So that'll be a live broadcast. Please stay tuned. Thank you so much to uh, Jane, Dave DeVoe, Francois Houle, uh, as well as Anna Fritz and Emma Hendricks, and of course, Cease Weiss and uh, Scott Clark for speaking to us about W2. On one last shout out, please check out Big Mouth tonight on uh, Google It. It is an event happening that will speak all about arts in Vancouver. Stay tuned for the AMS debates. Lying around with like me, cause now they're trying to be down with my session. Corrupt like projects in no recession. Consider it a blessing with Marvel. Hit the stage, go home and write a page. Cause if my daily routine vibrations are caught, and then I see the unseen when I creep, you know my is deep. Word up. Yo, hate runs deep in the hearts of many. Hate runs deep in the guts of all. Cause your hate can judge your fate with gun sprays at nighttime. Cause it's uh-huh. the right time for all. Hate runs deep in the hearts of many. Kids. Oh yeah, hate runs deep in the guts of all. Cause your hate can judge your fate. They're getting cut in their lifelines for crime, but we're still moving on. Getting stuck in the alleyways of unlucky schemes for bucks stuck in dead end shortcuts. But I chose to fight those urges that were foul and right throws and spite of foes lurking the prowl. So I live to see my child smile to increase my chance, fertilize my side of the family branch as my flows enhance a relationship of romance. Women get stuck in the trance. Brothers dig my silence, I intoxicate their minds with concise rhyme and give them the whole.